Good morning once again, everybody. It's uh, Mark Absher. It's time for us to get our Bibles out. We're going to continue our study of 1 Peter this morning. It's in a series we're calling Stand. And uh, we're going to be looking at really just two verses this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and verse 12. And uh, I'd like for you to get your Bibles open. Also get your handouts. I'm going to read that verse to us right now as we begin. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. Let's begin with prayer. Father, You are gracious to us and loving to us. You give us strength and You give us peace and You give us joy in our hearts. And all of this is because You love us and because You are near us. And we're grateful for this, Father, and we cling to this reality as it gives our life meaning and it gives our life a rock on which to stand on as we sometimes find ourselves in fearful and anxious times. We pray, Father, that we will be light and that we will be salt in this community. And we pray that the words that Peter says to us today through this ancient document will, will speak deeply into our souls and change us and melt us. And we ask, Father, that you give us discernment, that you help us to understand by giving us eyes and ears. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since 2009, you, you know this, uh, I've been part of a core group of men who have gone to Brazil to minister to missionary men in Central and South America. And to this core group, every trip we take, there are added new guys. A lot of these new guys have never been out of the United States, and a lot of them have never been to Brazil. And so since 2009, I've been asked to give a short presentation at our training seminar on how to behave in Brazil from the moment that we land in the country to the moment that we depart. Now, in a, in a manner of speaking, this is what Peter is doing in 1 Peter. In this world, from the day that you become a disciple of Jesus to the moment that you see him face to face, you are going to be the one who is different. Scott McKnight reminds us that we might be the one who looks odd. In his commentary on 1 Peter, he writes, which is a very good commentary, he writes these words, and I quote, It is not this way because we are trying to be odd. We are odd because we are trying to be godly. End of quote. So in a manner of speaking, we're the ones who are odd. We're the ones who are awkward in this culture because we're the ones trying to be godly. So here is the specific question that Peter is going to be answering for us today. The question is this, how do you live in the world when you're the one who's different? How do you live in the world when you are the one who's different? Now there is a lot that's going on in that question. Believe it or not, we live in a world that is similar to the one that Peter lived in, more so than at any other time since the beginning of, his, uh, of the Christian history. Peter, as you know, in the first century, after the resurrection of Jesus, lived and ministered, planting churches all over the world in what was then a pre-Christian world. And all of the challenges and the obstacles and even the dangers that he and the church faced continued until the beginning of the fourth century. That's when Constantine became the emperor of Rome, became a Christian. From the time of Constantine, from the 4th century until around the end of the 20th century, Christianity was basically the favorite religion in the world. But that has all changed as we live and minister in a post-Christian world. You know as well as I do, we've, we've been doing all the reading and have talked about this before, up until about the end of the 20th century, and this is uh, a phenomenon in our own lifetime, we now live in a post-Christian world again with all of its challenges, obstacles, and dangers. 
I want to read to you a quote from a young woman by the name of Mary Wilson who has contributed to a book on 1 Peter that is entitled The Resurrection Life in a World of Suffering. She writes this, Some of us are in situations that feel utterly desperate. Because of our Christian convictions, people whom we love misunderstand us. Because we don't endorse certain cultural values, society calls us hypocritical and hateful people. And year after year we have wrestled with the same old sins and the same old brokenness. We feel beaten down. These situations can be truly dark. But the darkest, most complicated circumstance in your life can become the very platform upon which God most brilliantly displays His mighty strength. Let me read that again. These situations can be truly dark. But the darkest, most complicated circumstances in your life can become the very platform upon which God most brilliantly displays His mighty strength. Now, in these two verses from uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, there is a lot of rich material. And we're not going to be able to cover all of it in the time frame that we had this morning. But what I want to address is what Peter has already mentioned earlier in the letter. Peter has already mentioned the possibility of suffering. And so at the beginning of, and he mentioned this at the beginning of the letter. And so what he's doing now in the middle of chapter 2 is now turning towards that subject matter a little bit more directly. Now when it comes to suffering and trouble or danger, humans have, and we, uh, we've uh, have, have known this ever since we were in elementary school, humans have a fight or flight response. When it comes to danger or stress or anxiety or, or pain, we either run away or we fight. Now in this letter, Peter's going to advocate neither of those. Peter's going to advocate that we engage as people who represent God. You'll remember that what we looked at last week dealt with Christians being built into living stones or being made into living stones as we trust the one who is the living stone. And as living stones, we're being built into a spiritual house or a temple or tabernacle in which God dwells. Now that is how we engage the world. It's not fight or flight, but we engage the world as people reflecting the presence of God back into the world. Peter was there at the Sermon on the Mount, and he heard uh, Jesus with his own ears teach all of his disciples to pray, that you know, we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As disciples, we participate and contribute to all of the processes, all of the ministries, the modeling and the demonstrating of the kingdom of God wherever we are, and as it turns out, whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in. And so here it is in a nutshell. Disciples of Jesus live an on-earth-as-it-is-in-heaven lifestyle. Disciples of Jesus live an on-earth-as-it-is-in-heaven lifestyle. And Peter begins the teaching with three very easy-to-understand lifestyle guidelines. And they'll be focused around these three words, no, abstain, adopt. Let's begin with the first one. Know your identity. Identity is important. And think of all of the areas of, of uh, the ancient world, all of the things that they were familiar with, all the ideas, all the word pictures that Peter has used to help his readers understand who they are in Christ. Beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1, it's the elect. And going on from there, strangers and exiles are resident aliens. Chosen. New birth. Uh, we experience a new birth. And later on he says, we are the people who are born again. We are using that same metaphor, the newborn babies craving spiritual milk in order to be crazy about growing up and into adulthood and maturity. 
In chapter 2, he talks about we're living stones built into a spiritual house in which God dwells. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people belonging to God. We are people formerly of darkness, but now people of light. We are, chapter 2, verse 10, people of God. And following on that, we are the people who had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. Now in verse 11, we're going to add one more to this list of all of the ideas and concepts, metaphors, that Peter has used to help us to understand identity. Now it's this, dearly, or dear, beloved. Most translations, and maybe the translation you're reading, has the word friend instead of beloved. But the word there for friend in the original language is agapetoi which sounds like the word, and you've heard this word all your life, agape. Agape toy, agape. You see the connection. The idea is dearly beloved, or dear beloved. Or something like, dear ones, deeply loved. Now Peter is writing this letter to Christians that he loves. And not only does he love them, but they are especially and deeply loved by God. In essence, our lives reflect the mind-boggling truth that we are God's beloved, that we are loved of God. And this is a truth that is found all over the New Testament letters. And we're going to look at some of those, those verses right now, and we're going to do this interactively. I'm going to show some verses up here on the screen. There's going to be some highlighted. You're going to say out loud, wherever you are, in your home, in your car, wherever, you're going to say out loud the words that are bold. Let's begin with this one that Paul writes to the church in Rome. To all in Rome who are loved by God. Okay, let's do that again. Participate, will you? This is going to emphasize the most important thing about these verses. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His holy people. To the church in Thessalonica, he writes, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. To the church in the region of Galatia, he writes, and this is a very famous verse, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me. To the church in Colossae, he writes, as God's chosen people, holy and, you got it, dearly loved. And then finally, one more reference to the church in Rome. He writes in that famous 8th chapter, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All of our behaviors are couched in this unfathomable reality and identity that we are loved by God. We are the beloved of God. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, I get it. I'm loved greatly by God. But I thought that you were going to give us some guidelines on how to live in a world that sees us as odd. What does this have to do with something practical for life? Well, to that, let me say this. That's a great question. But remember, in the New Testament letters, theology always precedes practicality. That theology, who you are, always precedes what you do from a practical standpoint. That is a biblical principle. So here it is, identity forms behavior. For instance, the identity of a fort determines its behavior. It'll help you eat, it'll help you spear that piece of steak, or to gather up those peas. But you would never use the fork to make a phone call. Let me give you another, another illustration. Think about what happens at a wedding. At a wedding ceremony, there's a preacher type like me who gets up and asks the groom, do you take this woman to be your wife? And then I turn to the bride and I say, do you take this man to be your husband? And if they say yes, then I pronounce him husband and wife. In that moment, that young man and that young woman have become a husband and wife in reality, 
before becoming a husband and wife in practice. The reality, I now see myself as a husband or I see myself as a wife, leads to a couple of questions about the practice or behavior that identifies with that identity. So, we ask question number one. What are the new priorities now that I have a new identity? What are the new priorities now that I have a new identity? With this identity as a husband, there's got to be some priorities. The old priority before I became a husband was self. I'm, I'm number one. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm responsible to nobody else. I do what I want. It's my money. I'm number one. But now, after I have said in that ceremony, in vows, the words I do, there is a new identity of being a husband, which includes a new priority. I have gone from a bachelor to a husband. There is now a new priority, and that new priority is the spouse. It is the wife. I serve the wife. I love the wife. I sacrifice for the wife. I care for the wife rather than self. And you know this as well as I do. If you keep the old priority and the old practices, it will be disastrous to the marriage. Then as a husband, I'm taking care of myself but not the wife, it will be disastrous. And so new practices and new behaviors need to be in line with the new identity. That's essential. But that leads us to the second question. What then are those new behaviors that are created by new priorities? Well, you know as well as I do, when you enter into a relationship like marriage, your lifestyle changes in a million different ways with that new identity of being a husband or a wife and all of those new priorities as husband and wife being understood. Now think about how your lifestyle changes because you identify as the beloved of God. Everybody serves. Nobody's against service. Everybody thinks of being a servant and serving other people, especially homeless or, or senior adults or whatever. Everybody in the world thinks that service is great. Everybody serves until it becomes too difficult or too uncomfortable or too dangerous or too, I just don't want to do it anymore. And then we stop serving because it doesn't pay. Unless we see who we are in Christ, the Beloved, and His example of service to us, and what that has done for our lives, and then seeing all of that, there is a whole new way of serving others. Or think about love. Everybody loves. And love is what makes the world go round. Everybody loves love. Everybody agrees with love, but it can be daunting. Think about what Peter, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that love never fails. So with love, like service, we love until it's too difficult or too uncomfortable or too dangerous or too costly or we just have lost that loving feeling and then love does indeed and unfortunately fail. Unless we see who we are because of the love that was the only thing that could keep the most beautiful human who ever lived on that cross so that I too could become the beloved of God and have every inch of my being saturated with that reality. And when we know that deep, deep down, it just melts us that we are loved like that. And because of that, it makes such great sense of the next two points. If I am God's beloved, then why wouldn't I abstain from evil? That makes perfect sense. If I'm loved by God, and God is calling me to be holy as He is holy, it just makes sense to abstain from evil. He says, or he continues in verse 11, Dear friends, 
I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Quite frankly, we should feel a tension and awkwardness uh, an incompatibility inside of us in the presence of evil. That tension or that awkwardness is the sense that there is a war being waged against our soul inside of us. In the presence of evil, we should feel like a piece of a puzzle from another box. And that's why we think it's such great wisdom from the old King Jimmy, Psalm 101, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Our lives are, are now lined up not just with the will of God, but with the love of God. And we live in this world. And we walk in this world without accommodating to its culture. And if I am the beloved of God, then why would I not adopt a life of beauty? Why would I not adopt beauty? In, in verse 12 he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The words, good deeds, can be literally translated beautiful words. We are people that are bringing, we have adopted the beautiful life, we are adopting a beautiful way, we are, we are inserting into the world beauty through beautiful works. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our lives of beauty and our lives of beautiful works glorifies God on earth as he is glorified in heaven. And so just as a reminder, disciples of Jesus live an on-earth-as-it-is-in-heaven lifestyle. Now, I want to end with just this crazy story. In my junior high years, there was this kid that was so obnoxious that he, if there was a caste system in my junior high, he would have been an untouchable. He was a pariah. He was despised. He was avoided at all costs. And then one day, he perpetrated an act that turned the whole school against him, and rumors began to fly that he was going to get beaten up after school. Well, he got word of it, and he did the smart thing. He hightailed it home after school with about half of the school running after him. They were fast, but he was faster because he was running for his life, and he made it into his home first. His mother was yelling for the kids to disperse, but they wouldn't leave. And then a couple of minutes later, there is a Ford Galaxy 500 that comes around the corner, speeding on two wheels, and it comes charging down the street. Someone yells, it's the dad. And most of the kids start to run. The car screeches to a stop, and out pops the father. He looks the kids that are remaining there in the eye, and there's a ton of them. There's about 80 or 90 kids there. And he asks, who has a problem with his son? And the ringleader says that he does, and he's come for a fight. True story. The father goes into the house, and a minute later he comes out with the pariah, the object of the outrage, who is standing beside him and says, if there's going to be a fight, it's going to be a fair fight. Now, let me stop. The world 50 years ago was a different place. That kind of thing would not have happened today. And you may be asking yourself how I know all of this. And it was because I was right there across the street and I saw with my own eyes what happened next. The pariah steps from behind his father to face his enemy. And with my own eyes, I saw the pariah, the, 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 the despised, avoided kid become a son. And as a son with the father near, to stand. Now, we're going to have some more things to say about this next week. But, but as strangers and exiles who may be facing some difficult times, never forget this, that we might be far from home as exiles and strangers, but we are never far from our Father. 
May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be blessed this week. Amen.